In this episode of Going Viral, Dr. Gary Groman discusses where we are now, what we need to know, and what the WHO recommendations are. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Welcome to this COVID-19 update, and I'd like to thank HealthEd for the invitation to give this presentation. My name's Gary Groman. I'm a consultant virologist. I would like to declare a few interests. I'm a board member and a director of the Immunisation Coalition, have an adjunct appointment at the University of Sydney. I was the head of immunobiology at TGA until 2015. And since then, I've been consulting to the World Health Organization, environmental pathogens, biointellect, bioselect, and I'm on a number of advisory committees, at least in the last 12 months, uh, with CSL, Novavax, and the Immunization Coalition. Some good news. WHO has declared that the COVID-19 global health emergency is over. So three years after they declared declared it a fake, a public health emergency of international concern, that designation has now been withdrawn. The reason for that is a drop in the death rate from 100,000 per week back in January 2021 to 3,500 per week in April 2023. But they've sent a few caveats on their lifting of this designation. The emergency may have ended, but the threat is still there. And I think that's an important point. There's still a threat that um, uh, the virus could recombine uh, with another virus, another coronavirus, and become more virulent, but the likelihood of that is extremely low. And also to not let down our guard, not to dismantle systems that have been built, not to send a message to everyone that COVID-19 is nothing to worry about. It is still a significant pathogen. They made a number of recommendations. I'll just go through a few of them. The first one was to sustain the national capacity gains and prepare for future event. Now, with this comes the idea of avoiding the cycle of panic and neglect. We've gone through a cycle of panic in 2019 and 20, uh, and then vaccines came in. And now in 2023, we're going through a cycle of neglect. This is evident because the virus is still spreading, although hospitalizations and deaths have dropped markedly because of viral mutation uh, uh, going to less severity. However, uh, there's also a cycle of neglect when it comes to vaccinating people and getting vulnerable people to keep up their booster shots. They've also suggested we integrate COVID-19 into life course vaccination programs, which does make sense as the virus will continue. So having it once or twice a year uh, would make sense. And to bring together information from diverse respiratory pathogen surveillance data sources to allow for comprehensive situational awareness. This is important because coronavirus, COVID-19, is not the only respiratory virus out there, or bacterial for that matter. So it's very important that we're aware of the viruses and bacteria in particular that are causing disease in our community and not just COVID-19. They also suggested that regulatory authorities strengthen their position. So the availability and supply and use of vaccines, diagnostics and therapeutics is always available. And then there's the infodemic management program. This is important because of the false information that's been going out to communities via websites and the internet and so on, and various um, agitating groups. Uh, So 
we must all continue to work with communities so we have strong, resilient and inclusive risk communications and community engagement to counter this infodemic. So what do we know right now? We know that the Omicron is highly infectious and we know that there are more waves to come. We know it spreads sufficiently. Its um, reproductive number is somewhere between five and six, far, more than, uh, far higher than flu, but not as high as measles. And we know it spreads efficiently in close community settings and places with poor natural ventilation, like hospitals, care homes, buses, planes, cars, trains, and so on. So good ventilation, sanitizers, masks, and social distancing will help to significantly diminish, and it does, uh, the risk of spread. And we've seen that particularly in 2020. We know severity of disease is diminishing due to mutation. And we know that severe community restrictions are not effective in halting disease spread. This is because of asymptomatic carriers. Uh, it's essential, of course, to have restrictions early in the pandemic uh, to protect health services, but we also know that mandates ultimately are counterproductive. We also know that we need at least three doses of vaccine. Uh, current vaccines do not stop transmission of disease, but they do stop against severe outcomes. And we know that heterologous vaccination gives slightly better protection and hybrid vaccination gives the best. We know adverse events occur, as they do with all vaccines. Um, it's very difficult to assess the risk, but I'll come back to this later. But it's, it's quite clear now that mRNA vaccines uh, do cause a myocarditis, uh, especially in men under 30. They have a very high risk of myocarditis um, somewhere between perhaps three and 10 per 100,000. We also know that long COVID exists uh, and the vast majority of cases to resolve within a year, and I'll come back to that point as well. And we know that current antiviral drugs are reasonably effective if given within 24 hours of diagnosis. And we also know that there are contraindications and GPs need to be very aware of this uh, when giving advice to their patients. We also know that PCR are, uh, is the most accurate for testing, uh, for detecting COVID-19. Rat tests are useful, but only if you're symptomatic. Again, I'll come back to that point with a graph. And we also know that rat tests, with rat tests, there are issues. There's one of sensitivity, which seems to be constantly diminishing. So it's hard to know if we can rely on a negative result. The problem of home use, are they being done properly? The problem of reporting, they're not reported at all. And the problem of personal responsibility and isolation, if you happen to be positive, and I believe they're inadvertently helping spread the virus through the community because of those issues. We know there are significant costs to the community in the form of mental health, undiagnosed diseases and so on. And we know there remains an urgent need for vision and unified action across the country, preferably with a single authority. At the moment, we've got six states and two territories, the Commonwealth with their respective health departments and medical officers and premiers prime ministers and so on, ministers that are making various declarations and pronouncements, not necessarily all in concordance. We also know there will be another similar pandemic. There will be three to four per century. We can expect another flu pandemic, I imagine, within the next 20 years, if not earlier. So what does WHO tell us? Where are we now? A global snapshot, 768 million cases, 6.9 million deaths. The case fatality rate's actually quite low at 0.9. We know that 13 billion doses of vaccine have been delivered around the world to help combat this virus. 
In Australia, uh, we have even a lower case fatality rate, 0.18, 11 million confirmed cases, 21,510 deaths. Uh, and the CFRs are almost certainly much lower as while we all record deaths quite well, we don't record confirmed cases quite well and they are clearly an underestimate and may well be doubled, in which case the CFR will end up being 0.05 or something like that is my estimation of the actual CFR. On this graph you can see that, um, uh, that vaccines were rolled out in 2021 and we had restrictions in place then and so there wasn't a lot of uh, COVID-19 about after the first wave because of restrictions. But when we lifted restrictions, despite vaccinations, cases increased markedly and deaths, and we had five distinct waves coming up to a sixth now. Seroprevalence has been done now, and we see in the UK, England, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Scotland, we see nearly 80% uh, of people have uh, SARS-CoV-2 antibodies at the 800 nanogram level, which is particularly high due to natural infection and vaccination or both. And we see in children in the top dark blue bar, these are primary school pupils that were unvaccinated. And you see over 80% of them have got antibodies showing asymptomatic spread is rife. Uh, and in secondary pupils, a similar story, the light blue uh, bar showing those that were vaccinated, but you still see, including unvaccinated antibodies, vaccinated and unvaccinated, I should say, antibodies go up to nearly 100%. We saw the same thing in Italy quite recently in a JAMA paper, and um, down the bottom in, uh, in, in C, you see the percentage positive of blood donors at that time in 2020, then 2021 and 2022 is still maintained at nearly uh, 80%. The same in Australia, seroprevalence in Australia done by two groups, the Kirby and NCIRS, show high rates um, of antibody, 98% across all jurisdictions in one study, and then 64% in 0 to 19 year olds in another. And importantly, 65% of vaccinated individuals also had nuclear capsid antibodies, which signifies past infection. What does uh, the genetics tell us? Well, this work comes from Gizaid, and we know that they've been monitoring variants and subvariants since the beginning and putting it up on their website. And we see at the moment XBB is dominating. Uh, Kraken 1.5, the 1.16 called Arcturus, and an FD 1.1, which is an XBB variant, are currently dominating. And on the right, we see subvariants that were monitored in the green and yellow graphs, and now we're looking in the red, We've got Krakat Arcturus and FD 1.1. There is a need, though, to stop catastrophizing the appearance of every subvariant and every mutation, which uh, often happens, particularly on social media. It's a constantly changing scene because of mutation. Severity is not getting worse. Uh, there will be more waves, and I'm assuming uh, and predicting that we'll see severity get less and less over time, as we're currently seeing with fewer and fewer hospitalizations and deaths. I might add the latest data from China, which people seem to be concerned about when they had their waves after lockdown. The viruses isolated there continue to resemble known circulating strains. Gizai can also follow uh, virus patterns throughout the world as people move around the world. And um, all, all that material on the right uh, with different colors of various uh, groups and clades 
but they can actually be traced and are being traced particularly well. And it's air travel, uh, travel in general, that moves the viruses around the world. But at the moment, we're generally dominated by XBB. Um, XBB 1.16 Arteris uh, is concerning some people, but I just want to say it's one of over 600 Omicron subvariants. It originated in India. It is a BA reassortant. It's closely related to 1.5 Kraken. Um, it's appeared in 34 countries now. 10% uh, of them have been isolated in the USA. They can cause conjunctivitis. There is naturally concern that it might um, recombine with another coronavirus or even threaten the effectiveness of current vaccines and therapeutics, but that's not the case and there's absolutely no cause for concern. The clinical course goes over pre-symptomatic, symptomatic and then recovery phases. And we can see viral replication in the pre-symptomatic, which is not unusual. Uh, this is why the virus is so successful, being excreted uh, in respiratory droplets prior to uh, disease, the symptomatic phase. And if that's mild, we get good innate immune responses and good cellular responses. But if they drop or are delayed for whatever reason, particularly immunosenescence, then it may lead to a more severe infection. And if that's delayed further and the human responses are poor, then it can lead to significant sequelae. Many have poor neutralizing antibody. Antibody will wane, leading to reinfection. And antibody probably only lasts six to eight weeks. And then you may get a post-COVID syndrome or long COVID. And down the bottom, there's the therapy where it can be used, prophylactic antibodies, antivirals, and various immunomodulators and therapeutic antibodies. The clinical symptoms are highly variable. Many viral positive individuals are asymptomatic or just have minor symptoms. People often describe fever, dry and persistent cough, fatigue, loss of taste and smell and so on, headaches, sore throat, myalgia, rigors, intestinal discomfort, ocular man manifestations are all not uncommon. Uh, severe symptoms are lead to hospitalization and there is this unusual presentation in children similar to Kawasaki disease multi-system inflammatory disease in children, a non-purulent conjunctivitis, polymorphic rash, mucosal changes and swollen extremities, and a high proportion of hypertension. So multifocal pathogenesis, cytokine storm uh, are not uncommon in patients with severe disease. And then those with neuromuscular conditions uh, need to be watched carefully as there can be an exacerbation of their disease or autoimmune conditions can get worse, GBS may, may manifest. And there is often viral reactivation of the herpes group, enteroviruses and HTLVs. So post-COVID syndrome or long COVID affects every system of the body, brain, lung, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal tract is common, leading to chronic inflammation, immune dysfunction and microthrombosis. It's very difficult to define and people are working on this. Uh, but from WHO point of view, it's uh, the continuation of development of new symptoms three months after the initial infection. And these systems are uh, symptoms are lasting for at least two months with no other explanation. And the symptoms vary a lot, but generally a fatigue, shortness of breath, cognitive dysfunction. One in uh, eight to 10 people are affected, 10 to 20%, and it's believed that more than 17 million people across the EU uh, have experienced long COVID during the first two years of the pandemic. 
In Australia, we've had a review done by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. They've estimated 5 to 10% have long COVID, but they've identified key risk factors. Those that have had a severe COVID illness, um, are those that have comorbidities, um, female gender, and mid-adult age groups. So they are some of the risk factors identified already in the Australian review. And they've also identified, and I've yet to look into this data more closely, but two COVID vaccination doses are associated with, not significantly, but associated with a 13 to 47% lower reduction of symptoms persisting beyond four weeks, which is a good reason to encourage people to get their primary course of vaccine. There are long-term effects and there's a number of uh, descriptions of it in the literature going under different names that I've listed up there. But anyone who gets COVID-19 can have long-term effects, including people with no symptoms or mild illness with COVID-19. But these are the most commonly reported symptoms, fatigue, dizziness, um, things that get, uh, symptoms get worse after any sort of effort, uh, recurrent fever, difficulty breathing. Um, more rarely we see these neurological symptoms that can involve all sorts of syndromes and in, including joint and muscle pain, pain, heart symptoms, digestive symptoms, blood clots, rash, changes in the menstrual cycle, reactivation of herpes leading to shingles, GBS or Bell's palsy. So post-COVID syndrome as WHO calls it or long COVID, we see it most commonly in, in adults. About 20% of adults will have long-term effects and severe illness with COVID, especially if hospitalized or needed intensive care. Now, recent research from CDC just to the end of last year showed us that COVID-19 does cause brain abnormalities uh, six months after the symptoms are gone, uh, changes to the brain stem and front lobe areas of the brain. And they did this using a special MRI and it's uh, the initial publication is in uh, the CDC journal MMWR that's, uh, that was published last year. In various surveys done, uh, there've been many significant symptoms in terms of severity for long COVID, uh, including loss of taste and smell, difficulty breathing, chest pain, pain when breathing, lump in the throat, having heavy arms or legs, general tiredness and painful muscles. And there are others, there's another quite long list published in The Lancet uh, not that long ago. What about vaccines available in Australia? We know we've got Moderna, Novavax and Pfizer. Uh, and we've had AstraZeneca, but it's no longer available. We do know that three doses are important for the primary course. Heterologous vaccination for a booster is be better. Hybrid vaccination, including the natural infection, is better again. In the clinical studies, all these three vaccines, or four vaccines actually, were found to be uh, comparable with immunogenicity efficacy and effectiveness, and reasonably comparable with safety as well uh, when it came to the phase three clinical studies. 30 to 40,000 people involved in these studies, which gives us around about a one in 10,000 chance of seeing a serious event. So myocarditis, for example, was not seen in this study. What does the target suggest for boosters? There's a nice table that they have, which is quite clear. If you have risk factors, then for under five, it's not recommended. Uh, for five to 17, it's still not recommended, but certainly worth considering. And that's a doctor-patient discussion. And for 18 and up, it's, it, it is recommended if people have risk factors. 
But for people with no risk factors and are healthy, it's not recommended for people under 18, only to consider, still not recommended for the 18 to 64, uh, but to consider, and it is recommended for the over 65s. So what about boosters? WHO have made a very clear statement that the benefit of a booster dose for healthy people now under 50 is questionable and the use of mRNA vaccine in healthy persons under 30 is not done in some European countries and not recommended by WHO. It's not clear that the benefits outweigh the risks. There's this issue of myocarditis and they've made the following st statement, data to support an additional dose for healthy younger po population is limited. And as the data is unfolding, it's quite clear there's no benefit compared to the risk. What about boosters and bivalents? Well, bivalents don't give any significant protection over current vaccines, just some extra protection. The reason is the problem of imprinting, or original antigenic sin, as it used to be called. So if you have a Wuhan strain plus an Omicron strain, or a Delta plus an Omicron, or an Omicron plus an Omicron, um, the best efficacy seems to be BA4 and 5, uh, then you don't get much extra protection. And in fact, with the mRNA studies, it shows only 36% efficacy after 76 days after a booster. And for those under 30, uh, it's very poor and marginal for under 50 in terms of efficacy. And really a protein vaccine from Novavax should be considered. There's little protection, if any, against transmission in any age group. So let's have a look at Novavax. With a Novavax, where is it? If you look into the literature from Otagi and Departments of Health, you would be forgiven uh, wondering why Novavax hardly appears. It doesn't seem to be recommended uh, strongly at all. mRNA vaccines are strongly recommended. And for people who want Novavax, it's very difficult to get a Novavax shot at the chemist or even with your doctor and to find the supply. And if you need one from the chemist, you need a doctor's certificate to get it. So there's certainly plenty of hurdles if you want a protein vaccine. This is well tolerated, high efficacy, excellent safety. It's got global capacity with ease of distribution and much better the stability than mRNA. So it's very difficult to understand why it isn't being recommended more strongly. It's an innovative vaccine, nanoparticles based on recombinant protein technology, which we've seen before with influenza virus and have history of safety with that. Uh, it's a full length SARS-CoV-2 spike and is formulated using an adjuvant matrix N. If you look at the phase three studies, they're excellent. The overall efficacy, 90% or so uh, going down a bit. You see efficacy against variants in the 90s, efficacy against severe disease, 100% in one study, uh, high risk populations in the 90%. So it's very difficult to criticize this vaccine anyway, or to say in any way that it's uh, inferior to mRNA. It isn't. It also has a durable antibody response. The antibody response actually lasts longer than that driven by mRNA vaccines. So that's something else that um, needs to be considered and known. So Novavax vaccine safety. Um, no vaccine is free of uh, any safety issue, uh, but there's very little myocarditis and pericarditis. And Novavax um, uh, studies have made it clear um, in 2.4 million doses, there's only been 12 confirmed myocarditis cases. The distribution is not clustered in any group or by sex, and it's no higher than background. Uh, so 
certainly it would be the vaccine of choice in my view for people under 50, whether healthy or carrying uh, some underlying condition if, if they want the vaccine. Let's have a quick look at vaccine injury. TGA uh, takes reports, um, very low numbers there, only 2.1 per thousand. Most of them are in uh, the Pfizer and um, uh, AstraZeneca vaccines because they were used pre predominantly and more abundantly to start with. There are some reports emerging for spike bat backs and very few for Novavax. Uh, so um, this of course is an underestimate uh, and this involves everything from a, a, a sore arm to myocarditis. So um, uh, going a little further into the rare side effects, we see that with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, we saw the thrombosis with um, AstraZeneca vaccine, and we know there have been 14 deaths attributed by the TGA at least to people due to vaccination, which is really unfortunate. 13 to AstraZeneca, one to Spikebacks. mRNA side effects, um, we, we see a much better picture, I think, from the US FDA compared to the TGA, which are very low, low numbers. Here we see a snapshot of 42,000 reports. They report 2.5% with cardiac issues from vaccination, 24% with GI issues, and 17% with fatigue. And that's uh, work done by FDA, and every so often they'll do a snapshot of what's going on with the mRNA vaccines. So just a little more on myocarditis and mRNA vaccines. There's been a paper published in JAMA just recently uh, from the US, 1626 cases with myocarditis within seven days. And they found in males, 12 to 15 years, 70 per million. Males, 16 to 17 years, 105 per million. Males, 18 to 24, 52, 56 per million uh, for Pfizer and Spikevax, respectively. More than we think, more than what's touted out there in social media or by various departments of health. It's not a vanishingly rare um, uh, syndrome. It's much more common than we think. And um, uh, I think it's uh, something of concern that we need to be careful of in healthy people under the age of 30. Last time I gave a talk, Ramesh, um, who I'm sure you all know, um, did a little survey for us and uh, a number of questions were asked. What was surprising was the numbers that came back that was reported by you, the GPs looking at this seminar, um, so symptoms, signs and functional changes within six weeks, average number of seven, um, going across all GP practices, total number 10,000 or more there. Uh, and then 12 weeks or more, you see 6,000. Hospitalization, 4.7 thousand. And deaths, 2,000. That was an interesting snapshot over the practices that were represented at a lecture. And it would, and the plan is to do more work in this area to see what is being reported or underreported, and, and I think we need to keep a very careful eye on vaccine injury. Just a very quick word on treatments. Uh, we know we've had antivirals, antibodies, anticoagulants and so on available for some time. There's more evidence emerging on statins, particularly in combination with ARBs. Seems to be also quite effective. Uh, some micro, micronutrients like vitamin D might also be useful if there's a deficiency, uh, but that would be the only reason. And we know about a number of treatments that are available, but I just wanted to say that monopiravir should no longer be routinely given, but it's um, Paxlovid uh, that should be being used. 
Um, but again, it requires uh, patient-doctor consultation because there are many contraindications. I can't list them here, but I've given the website uh, if you'd like to uh, be more aware of those. However, it can be given to people 70 years or older regardless of risk factors with or without symptoms. 50 years and older with two risk factors, First Nations persons uh, 30 years and older with one risk factor and 18 and older that are moderately immunocompromised. So I've just got a few concluding remarks. Firstly, to remind everyone, this is still a global problem. It's not necessarily just a local problem. We have a lot of travel. Virus will come in to this country again and again and reseed itself into the community. We don't know what the next variant will be, but currently XBB is dominating. Maybe in six months time, it'll be entirely different, but we can expect it to be less severe at this stage. That's been the trend now for some time. And we've seen Omicron now for over a year and a half without going to the next major variant. We clearly need to transition to and manage a steady state of low level transmission in the community. Will the virus mutate? Uh, maybe force new vaccines to be made? The answer is almost certainly yes. Correlates of protection still unknown. Will virus, uh, sorry, will vaccines prevent transmission? And the answer is no. Uh, so we're left with uh, endless boosters for the vulnerable. Will the community accept vaccines that might not be optimal? I don't think they will. Will vaccines prevent severe disease and hospitalizations? The answer is yes. But the virus is attenuating. It's almost becoming a little bit of a vaccine virus in itself. Should masks return in closed spaces? I believe they should. It's only uh, sensible restrictions. Um, and wearing masks in closed spaces that are poorly ventilated that will protect people from actually catching the virus. We do need to be proactive and not just reactive. We still need to keep up education, surveillance, tests, vaccines, and treatments. We need second generation vaccines. Those that will stop transmission from person to person rather than just give protection against hospitalization and death. We must have also improved safety profiles. We can't keep going with myocarditis as a major risk in uh, younger people in particular. We must also be careful of adjuvant safety. Um, so mRNA, self-amplifying mRNA um, or RNA, uh, recombinant protein vaccines are currently the most successful and available. Mild to severe adverse reactions do exist, particularly in those under 30. The protein nanoparticle vaccines like the Novavax really ought to be promoted for use, particularly in adults. Um, and um, there are other vaccines in the pipeline. There are intranasal and oral vaccines. They will prompt a faster immune response, but they're not particularly efficacious and the jury's out on those. There are gamma irradiated vaccines and the use of microarray patches uh, that are coming. And I think that's quite an exciting area uh, and these might be new possible approaches in the future. COVID vaccines must gain acceptance. We do need COVID flu combination rather than concomitant vaccination, and that will come. Annual vaccination at least, and probably biannual for those at higher risk would make sense. mRNA adverse reaction issues need to be monitored carefully, and protein vaccines are preferred by many people in the community and would be safer than mRNA, particularly for the under 50s. So our next challenges, well, they're continuous. The continuous challenges of pandemic preparedness, avoiding the cycle of neglect, and continually promoting good vaccines and boosters as we can.
for those that need them. Um, long COVID will be an issue for some time as will vaccine injury. The use of monoclonal antibodies and better antiviral drugs really needs to be continuously explored because we're, we're gonna need those for the next pandemic. Uh, they'll come first before vaccines will arrive. And the triple threat of flu, COVID and RSV is there now. And we need to monitor that very, very carefully. And some good news in the RSV space is that uh, vaccines have been registered at least overseas and vaccines will be available to RSV. And I know Moderna are working on an mRNA that would cope with influenza, COVID and RSV. Thank you for listening. And I'd just like to acknowledge these various organizations uh, from which I've uh, retrieved data. Thank you again. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.